bystander's notion of stolen rights, bad governance, and paternalistic manipulation by people with money or control of the land. In some of the darkest stories, the writer understands the reasons behind the misery-inducing ignorance and violent natures of the characters, reasons political as well as spiritual, that go back historically to two things. That the South was founded on the notion that the man who owned the plantation was by blood better than the man, black or white, who grew his crops, the most un-American notion there is. And two, though it's easy for someone to be religious if he owns nothing to distract him from his beliefs, a life showing no profit for body or mind turns to vengeance more than it patiently endures wrongs. Such patience was for residents of the North, Midwest, and West, who could better afford to support their families, and who endured wrongs of a smaller sort. Southern writers who know their history love to write about characters who suffer through, and they at least understand the mean ones wrecked by inherited or self-made misery. Southern storytellers do love their cities, their places. Back through eighteen issues of New Stories from the South, most tales begin with mention of Charlotte, New Orleans, the asylum at Dix Hill, a Biloxi supermarket, a beach in Texas, Grand Crapeau, Nickeltown, or places in the Everglades or along the intercoastal canal that never had a name, just a sprinkle of folks glad there's something good to eat and no snow on the ground at all. Whether a real place or made up, there seems to be a fine, wry edge to locations where even the dark tales are lined with some unresurrected wit, where we find even O'Connor's murdering misfit and Faulkner's Abner's Snopes a little bit funny. I noticed the Southern writer's love of humor a long time ago when reading Sinclair Lewis and Erskine Caldwell at the same time. Gopher Prairie was plain depressing, merely ordinary, whereas one of Caldwell's murderous hamlets, where the town butcher napped with a hunk of bloody roast under his head, was nauseatingly hilarious. The scene smacked of life descended through a damned sordid history, and reminded me of how many storytellers operating below the frost belt use humor as an anesthetic, or at least as a crazy distraction, sort of like refreshments served at an execution. Southern writers love the short story form, too. Maybe this springs from the fact that Southerners like to talk so much, and no two or three can sit at a table long before some sort of liar's competition breaks out, generally involving animals or machinery. Talked-out tales are short, of course, self-contained, plotted even, like one I overheard in an airport where a Tennessee farmer was telling about how he took pictures of his cow's udders with his cell phone and emailed them to a veterinarian a thousand miles away who'd sold him a bag balm that wasn't clearing up an inflammation. Then there was the time I was sharing a meal with some writers from a very northern state, my stomach comforted by the bland food, the folks at table intelligent and kind as could be, but there were actual silences in the conversation, kind of relaxing and respectful, really. The writers were talking about all sorts of things, how hard it was to teach writing, for example, but nobody told a story beginning, one time I taught this deaf student how to hear train whistles, or I had a great uncle who owned a chihuahua that was an alcoholic. I couldn't imagine a pause in conversation at a meal with southern writers, who generally see storytelling as an Olympic competition. Indeed, life itself is a sequence of short narratives, stitched together with the mantra, Hey, that reminds me of... Sometimes, southern story writers reveal an embedded, complex need to communicate something they love, or something they wished they loved, 
or something they could have loved if they'd ever had it. Sometimes. You could read the stories in this book and find out for sure. This ends Warts and All, a preface to New Stories from the South, The Year's Best, 2004. And now, the first story in this collection, A Rich Man by Edward P. Jones, narrated by Dion Graham. Horace and Lenice Perkins, one child, one grandchild, lived most unhappily together for more than twelve years in apartment 230 at Sunset House, a building for senior citizens at 1202 13th Street Northwest. They moved there in 1977, the year they celebrated 40 years of marriage, the year they made love for the last time. Lanise kept a diary of sorts, and that fact was noted on one day of a week when she noticed.